I brought you the Whiskey A Go Go fire case in which 15 people were killed in 1973. This week, we go through the aftermath and whether all is as it seems. Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Well, last week I left off the Whiskey A Go Go fire story with John Stewart and James Finch being convicted of murder and sentenced to life. Open and shut case. But was it? If you haven't listened to last week's episode, please pause and have a listen so you're up to speed. References used here are from Jeff Plunkett's book, The Whiskey A Go Go Massacre, Murder, Arson and the Crime of the Century. I got mine on Amazon and use the uh, Kindle to read it. The Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, the abc.net.au and the Brisbane Times. Additional references are from court records. So let's have a bit of a recap anyway. John Stewart was a career criminal and his story in regards to the whiskey fire was that he had been bailed out by an underworld figure or figures in Sydney in 1972. They wanted him to go up to Brisbane and front a protection racket they planned to run involving bars, restaurants and nightclubs. Stewart then flew to Queensland and started hanging out at various places, making himself seen and he also hooked up with not only a reporter he'd known for years, Brian Bolton, but also a copper called Basil Hicks. He told both Bolton and Hicks that a criminal syndicate from Sydney were coming to run a protection racket in Queensland and to show they were serious, they would firebomb one nightclub that was closed at the time and then firebomb another during opening times. Stewart actually told Bolton that the club to be targeted during opening hours would be the Whiskey A Go-Go nightclub. Stewart told both of them, that's Bolton and Hicks, that he didn't want to be any part of it but it was hard to say no to the people that had bailed him out earlier. And as Stuart warned, the first empty Torino nightclub got firebombed, but then the Whiskey A Go-Go also got firebombed, with 15 people losing their lives and around another 40 injured. Straight away, an inquest is opened, but then adjourned after Stuart and Finch are arrested and charged with arson and murder just a short time later. Both Stuart and Finch proclaimed their innocence at the time and even after they were convicted. So now we get to after they've been convicted and I might like to say this inquest was never reopened. There was and still is a lot of controversy over this case. At the time, corruption was rife not only in the Queensland police force 
but also the state government. What goes hand in hand with corrupt coppers and politicians is organised crime. Would John Stewart and James Finch set up all along? If they were, who set them up? Was the firebombing just an insurance job with an elaborate story behind it to make out like the club owners were being extorted? The whiskey was in financial troubles at the time, which could be a motive for an insurance job. So tonight, let's go over some of the controversial details of this case. Now first, there's Stuart and Finch. Now Stuart paid for Finch's airline ticket from the Qantas ticket office in Brisbane and has said to the sales lady, I want to pay a fare for a friend to travel from London to Brisbane tomorrow. Stuart booked Finch on Qantas flight 728, made a deposit of $260 and then returned the next day to pay the remaining $159.70 in cash. Sounds like a cheap ticket for a Qantas flight, but that is back in the day. So why would he do this? Now, Stuart reckoned that he did this so Finch could visit his sick mum. That is, Stuart's sick mum, as she'd been sick and Finch had known her for quite a while. But why then would he be going under the alias Doug Jones and going into hiding after the fire and also be hiding his passport? He entered Australia under his real name, so why use an alias when he arrived? Also, Finch, he was known to be an arsonist. Knowing Stuart knew all along that there was going to be arson attacks on several nightclubs, and he gets his arsonist mate out from London just before the whiskey fire. I mean, this doesn't look good. Especially when Finch did get to Australia, like I said, he went under this assumed name. This, of course, is just circumstantial evidence, but as I said, this doesn't look good for Stuart and Finch. Now, when Stuart and Finch, well, Stuart at this moment, had been interviewed by police, he tried to put the blame on others, or at least he told them he suspected others of being involved. Stuart told police that he suspected three others had firebombed the whiskey. Roger the Dodger Brennan, Leslie Newcomb and a Ross Gardner. He'd met all three career criminals while doing time inside. The problem is that Leslie Newcomb and Ross Gardner were in prison at the time of the fire and Roger the Dodger was also in prison when Stuart had said he'd met him at Sydney Airport before flying to Brisbane. So Stuart's claims were shown to be completely false in this instance. So why bring them up if they couldn't possibly be involved? Maybe to send police on a wild goose chase, knowing himself they weren't involved, and so he technically wasn't being a snitch. And from what I've heard, Stuart was never a snitch, or as they said back in the day between the crims, the worst thing to call someone was a dog. But Stuart also mentioned four others, Reginald Hanna, Richard Harris, Peter O'Connor and Jerry Quick. Richard Harris and Peter O'Connor had said they were probably at the Flamingo Club on the night of the fire 
while Reginald Hanna and Jerry Quick had left for Sydney before the fire. They were extensively interviewed by police and found not to have anything at all to do with the fire. So these claims of Stewart were also proven to be false. Or did the police just say they weren't involved to cover something up? Now, as I said, back in this time, Queensland police and government were really corrupt. Even the notes the detectives took when interviewing Finch were not signed by Finch. He says he was verbaled and these notes were damning in the trial. Police at the time would often resort to this when they were sure the accused was guilty, but they couldn't get a confession out of him. It was seen as an okay method to get justice done, and one of the detectives that interviewed Finch said that this had been done before. The culture of verbaling, well, if the cops 100% know the perpetrator is guilty, and guilty of such a crime where 15 innocent people are killed, then is society okay with police resorting to these tactics? I'm thinking, yeah, nah. Now, both Finch and Stewart interviews were not recorded on audio or videotape. We only have the detective's record of interview. That's their personal notes. And they were unsigned by Finch and Stewart. So I myself would not put too much weight on both of those record of interviews. Which is why I should mention here the Fitzgerald Inquiry. In May 1987, acting Queensland Premier Bill Gunn ordered a commission of inquiry after the media reported possible police corruption involving illegal gambling and prostitution. Tony Fitzgerald QC was appointed to lead the commission of inquiry into possible illegal activities and associated police misconduct. And this was known as the Fitzgerald Inquiry. During the inquiry, the terms of reference were extended to look into any other matter or thing appertaining to the aforesaid matters, which enabled Fitzgerald to further investigate evidence of political corruption. Initially expected to last about six weeks, the inquiry spent almost two years conducting a comprehensive investigation of long-term systemic political corruption and abuse of power in Queensland. Public sittings were held on 238 sitting days, hearing testimony from 339 witnesses and focusing public attention in Queensland and throughout Australia on integrity and accountability in public office, including policing. The inquiry changed the policing and political landscape in Queensland and across Australia. Significant prosecutions followed the inquiry, leading to four ministers being jailed and numerous convictions of other police. Former Police Commissioner Sir Terence Lewis was convicted of corruption, jailed and stripped of his knighthood. And former pres- Premier, President, he was almost like, Sir Joe Bajelke Peterson was charged with perjury for evidence given to the inquiry, although his trial was aborted due to a hung jury. The 630-page Fitzgerald report was tabled in Parliament in July 1989. It made over 100 recommendations covering the establishment of the Electoral and Administrative Review Commission and the Criminal Justice Commission 
and reform of the Queensland Police Force. Now, this Fitzgerald inquiry, that's an episode or even a whole series by itself, but it showed how corrupt police and politicians had been for decades and definitely during the Whiskey Fire. Now, let's get on to Daniel Stewart. That's John Stewart's brother. He testified that John had told him that if he could just get $100 a night from each club, he'd be all right. Daniel told him not to get involved. So this is his brother who testified him against him at the trial. But it still doesn't prove John Stewart organised the fire. But again, when you have all this circumstantial evidence coming together, it does make a case stronger. Apparently, Daniel Stewart did not claim any of the $50,000 reward money. So that's one thing. So I guess this shows that Daniel wasn't making up a story to get hold of that reward money and that he genuinely believed his brother and Finch had been the perpetrators of the fire. Now, there is a little interesting tidbit that happened on the night of the fire. At 10pm on the night of the fire, Brian Little, the owner of the whiskey, had approached 22-year-old Donna Porter, now Donna Phillips, who was working at the club as a waitress, and asked if she could take over the reception front desk from his partner, Jeanette Zidich. What surprised Donna about this is she'd only ever worked as a waitress, but never as the receptionist and cashier. Also, what was strange about this is that the owners never really interacted directly with the staff. Rather, they stayed in the background. Now, this is what I've heard. I'm not sure if this is 100% correct. Brian Little left with his partner, Jeanette, to go to the opening of Blinkers Nightclub, and then they returned at 11.45pm, with Jeanette resuming receptionist duties. During this time, Donna answered a call from what was a terse man who asked for Brian and when he was told he wasn't there, he hung up. At 1am, Brian again approached Donna asking for her to take over from Jeanette as he was taking her home. Jeanette didn't want to go, but Brian insisted. Brian did return after dropping Jeanette off at home, but again left when the Deltones finished their set at around 1.30am which was apparently also strange as he usually stayed until closing time at 3am. So of all nights, Brian Little and his partner Jeanette Zidich act in what you could say was a suspicious manner or at least out of character. Did Brian Little know of the impending firebomb and wanted to make sure his partner was safe at home? If the whiskey fire was to be an insurance job organised in part by Brian Little, the owner... Well, you can imagine he would want his partner well away from the premises. Also, if it was true that he usually stayed at the club until closing, the fact that he went home early adds weight to the theory of an insurance job. Now, here's an excerpt from the Brisbane Times of Donna describing the fire from moments before it happened. Now, she was going to get water from the back bar and ask Desmay, the waitress, for a glass of water. Now... (laughs) I do say waitress, I don't know if I have to say wait person or bar staff, but this is 1973, so I'm using the terms of the day. So Donna said, I'd walk from the front door to the drinks bar near the stage. 
I turned to Desmay, the lady from New Farm who died, the lady with three children, and she gave me a glass of water. And then the fireball erupted through the door. So technically, if I'd still been at the front door, I would have died, of course. There was a fireball, a large burst of fire, and it blew through the top floor entrance to the club. It did erupt through the door. Johnny Bell was sitting there with people, and I do remember seeing him run, although I don't know what he did. I saw the fireball erupt. I saw John Bell run this way, and Peter, a young drinks waiter, who was behind the bar, well, he began running. As Peter was running, the curtain started to catch fire and it spread very quickly. As he was running, his hair and the clothes on his back caught fire. And I watched him run to the end of the bar, to the furthest end from the fire. And I imagined that he bent under the bar and tried to get the money from the till. While he was bending over, that's where he collapsed and died. Donna said she now realised she was in shock at the time. I just stood there. My eyes were on him. The lights then began to flicker at the top end of the room and go out. They started to go out in succession from the door end. Donna says she escaped through another door, helped by two men, went down the front stairs towards a rear door and scrambled outside. Two men came to the door. I don't know if it was open or closed, but then we exited down the steps, out the back door, and then over the security gate and onto the footpath into Amelia Street side. And we sat in the footpath across the road and watched the whole affair. We watched the bodies being brought down. In my grief at the time, I believe I saw the body of Desmay Carroll, the lady who was over my shoulder behind the drinks bar near the stage. Donna says she still believes Desmay paused for a few minutes to save the takings from the till. She was a very ethical person and she was overcome and she was to die. Donna says the shock lasted long after the nightclub blaze was doused. It's just really horrific, isn't it? It's just one minute, everything is fine. And then within minutes, 15 people are dead and the place is just engulfed in fire and smoke. Now, this next bit, this this part of the story is really tragic. It's really sad. It's just absolutely awful. On January the 16th, 1974, the wife of Billy McCulkin, Barbara, 34, and her two young daughters, Vicky, 13, and Leanne, 11, well, they went missing. Billy McCulkin was a longtime friend of Stuart's, and the theory of why they went missing is that Barbara had been talking about the whiskey firebombing and that she knew who did it. Also, the two kids had been talking about what they'd overheard. They'd apparently been talking about this at school as well. It was feared Barbara and the kids may spill the beans on who was really responsible for the whiskey fire. Now, Barbara had moved the kids to two different locations. She'd sort of moved out herself as she'd feared for their lives. She was estranged also at this time from her husband, Billy McCulkin. Still, Barbara and her two daughters, who'd last been seen in the company of two scumbags, Vincent O'Dempsey and Gary Dubois, well, they went missing. To this day, they haven't been found, believed murdered, and only recently O'Dempsey and Dubois were found guilty of their murders. 
What did they know? Did they know the real perpetrators of the Whiskey Fire and the Torino Fire? Billy, as I'd said, had been estranged from his wife and both of the kids at the time they went missing. Well, a year later, in February 1975, Billy Stokes, he was a publisher. He published an article in the Ports newspaper that a gang called the Clockwork Orange Gang had been involved in the Torino and Whiskey Fire bombings. He wrote that the Clockwork Orange Gang consisted of Thomas Hamilton, Peter Hall, Gary Dubois and Keith Meredith. They'd torched the Torino Club for 500 bucks on behalf of Billy McCulkin and Vince O'Dempsey. McCulkin and O'Dempsey had also arranged for the same gang to torch the whiskey. He said that Hamilton and Hall had approached Stewart to be their front man and collect extortion money from the club owners. So if this version of events is true, it does look like Finch and Stewart were just patsies and used to carry the blame for the firebombings. Anyway, a month before Stokes published this account, Hamilton, one of the Clockwork Orange gang, was snatched at gunpoint from his girlfriend's house and his body's never been found. Stokes, Stokes the publisher, he would end up being charged and convicted of Hamilton's murder and he also says to this day that he didn't abduct and kill Hamilton. In another twist, Stokes would reverse his claim that Stewart and Finch were not guilty after meeting with Stewart in jail. I mean, when you start researching all this, this is why this case is so mind-bending. As you look closer, there's just a web of criminals, corrupt police and lies. You really don't know who to believe. Now, I think Stokes once said it was like trying to find out who assassinated JFK. Now, six years after the whiskey was firebombed, a coroner found that Vincent O. Dempsey and Gary Dubois had abducted Barbara and her daughters. Charges were laid, but withdrawn for lack of evidence. However, in 2017, now that's 30-odd years later, Vincent O'Dempsey and Gary Dubois would finally be charged and found guilty of the murders of Barbara McCulkin and her two daughters, Leanne and Vicky. The story goes that O'Dempsey tied up the three and drove to bushland near Warwick, where he's believed to have strangled Barbara before killing the girls and burying their bodies. He was found guilty of three murders. His accomplice, Gary Dubois, was also found guilty of raping and murdering the sisters, Leanne and Vicky, as well as Barbara's manslaughter. I'll just read out from the Brisbane Times on how they were caught after so many years. O'Dempsey, an underworld figure known as the Angel of Death, first opened up to Associate Warren MacDonald, who he was working with on a large cannabis crop in Carrara. Mr MacDonald told the trial they were driving to Warwick in 1997 when O'Dempsey boasted he killed the McCulkins but would never be charged. They'll never catch me because they'll never find the bodies, O'Dempsey told MacDonald. In 2011, Kerry Scully was engaged to O'Dempsey when he told her to buy the true crime book Shotgun and Standover from the local Big W. While in bed, O'Dempsey showed her a picture in the book of himself 
walking from court with a leather jacket slung over his shoulder and bragged about the McCulkin murders. I'm good for it, but they'll never get me for it, Dempsey said. Miss Scully left the relationship the next day as you would and remained in fear of the man who she later told police was an intelligent serial killer who covered his tracks. He takes you in the middle of the night like an angel and you're gone for good, Miss Scully told a committee hearing in November 2015. The final key witness emerged just months before O'Dempsey's trial. A remand prisoner who cannot be identified had noted down a confession on scrap pieces of paper and crosswords. She had to be dealt with, O'Dempsey said. In those days you got paid to do a job, you did a job. I never laid a hand on the two kids. Shorty did. That means Dubois. Pretty disgusting and as I said, their bodies have never been found. At least there is some little bit of, well, little bit of late justice for Barbara, Leanne, Vicky, the family and friends. Now this implicates Billy McCulkin and the Clockwork Orange Gang as being involved in the fires. Now why did the police investigation stop at just Stuart and Finch? We'll never really know other than the gang were involved with corrupt coppers and even corrupt business owners. You don't want your bad boys going to prison, especially if they know too much. Now one other thing concerning Finch's interview with police is where, you know, he didn't sign this as a confession. Now rather, the police took notes and used these notes as evidence in the trial. Now, there's something called statement analysis. The language used in Finch's so-called record of interview was too elegant compared to what it should have been, seeing as though he was a 28-year-old Cockney with limited education. Analysis of Finch's language in the record of interview and the answers he gave in the trial found that there was only a 1 in 236,472 chance the wording in the statement of interview was his words. Statement analysis, like I said, it's a real thing. If you want to have a little bit more of a look at it, there's uh, Peter Hyatt. You can Google some of his work on YouTube. He is an expert on the subject. By the way, he's done analysis on the Jerry and Kate McCann interviews, which is quite eye-opening if you think they didn't do it. So when Finch's record of an interview was analysed, and that wasn't by Peter Hyatt, but another expert, it was found to not be his words. Now, this is important when trying to see if he had been verbaled, which, as I said, police did it all the time back then. Also, police during the interview, they didn't ask many questions about the night like they normally would do in an interview. The statement was only a few pages long. Now, normally this sort of interview would go into many aspects of the night, what he was doing before and after, what he ate that night, and where he ate, what he was wearing. All this sort of detail would be asked and re-asked over hours and hours and hours. Now, this statement should have been much, much longer, but it just seemed to contain the main details of what happened. Now, this points to a document that was just made up, rather than a record of interview. But again... As I said, this wasn't signed by Finch. Now, this is how this is spreading so far. Apparently, 
Roger Rogerson, disgraced former New South Wales policeman, wrote up the notes. I mean, having Roger involved from New South Wales, this just muddies the water on a, on this case so much more. Now, why is he even involved? In 1988, Finch was released on parole and he was deported back to England. Go back. When he was back home in England, he was approached by several news outlets who were prepared to pay him for a tell-all interview. Finch did a couple of deals and one with Yarn Event of Australia 60 Minutes. He finally confessed to doing the whiskey a go-go fire. But then when Yana told him he'd only actually been tried for one murder, that of 17-year-old Jennifer Denise Davey, and that he could be extradited back to Australia to face 14 other murder charges, he suddenly realised he was in the shit and started mumbling about how he suddenly couldn't remember anything anymore. So, was this confession by Finch just a money grab by him because he thought he'd already done time for the murders and couldn't be charged again? I mean, this, like I said, this case is just a mess. It's, it's full of just so much lies, all this bullshit coming from everyone. In 2017, <laughs> that's only a couple of years ago, but, but this two years will seem like a long time, a new inquest was announced into the whiskey fire. But as, as of now, it hasn't gone anywhere. I've heard the key witnesses have not even been contacted. Now, the longer it takes to have this inquest, the harder it is as witnesses pass away. But also, on the other hand, those people who are a little bit scared to come out and give evidence before, well, they might be willing to give evidence now that some of these people they were scared of are now dead. Look, someone knows the truth about that night when the whiskey went up in flames, killing those 15 people. Now, at this stage, I want to just mention a bit about those 15 victims. There was Colin William Falster, 19, from Red Hill. He was a musician in the band Trinity. At Colin's funeral, his family remember him as mum's favourite. How he learnt the piano at school, then moved on to the drums. He was an apprentice painter at the time. He loved to sing Kay Sarah, Sarah, with his mum. His beloved Holden Carr, Well, that was repossessed with just two payments left on it and when the family finally tracked it down, they couldn't get it back from the financiers who told his mum, Madam, he's dead and it's our car now. Darcy Thomas Day, 22, of Holland Park, also a musician from the band Trinity. His dad had made the saxophone he was using on the night and apparently he would have escaped but he went to retrieve the saxophone that was on the stage and succumbed to the smoke. The saxophone was charred, but has been restored and remains within the family today. It's in such good condition that the family, including Darcy's niece, Maddie, have been able to play it. William David Nolan, 22, military police from, I'll try and get this right, Indiripoli, now, or Indrapilli. I think it is. Corporal William Nolan was at the whiskey having a drink with his colleague, Leslie Gordon Pallanthorpe, 20. He was a Lance Corporal from Indripoli. 
Lance Corporal Pallanthorpe was recently married and had a 10-month-old son. His wife was pregnant with their second child. He'd only arrived in Brisbane the previous day after a transfer. Both William David Nolan and Leslie Gordon Pallanthorpe were at the whisky because they'd been refused admission to the Lands Office Hotel because they didn't have ties on. What an awful twist of fate. You get can't get into one place because you haven't got a tie on. You end up at the whiskey. The only reason you're at the whiskey is because of that. It's just awful. And plus, uh, Palanthorpe, his wife pregnant, just had a 10-month-old son. It's just awful. Then there's Ernest John Peters, 50, and his son Jez- Desmond John Peters, 31. They were Rockhampton farmers. Ernest and Desmond were farmers, and at the time, Ernest was happy as he had brought a racehorse from the exhibition ground yielding sales. Also, he and his son Desmond had just won a load of money at the Albion Park races. Sad the father and son died in this awful fire. Carol Ann Green, 27, from Camp Hill. Carol had earlier missed the Deltones playing at the National Hotel, so she followed them to the whiskey. She'd left home that night assuring her mum, don't worry, I'll be all right, I'll be back at half past ten. Carol did go to the whiskey with Brian William Watson, 32, of Goodner. Now, you just think, if they'd just seen the Deltones earlier in the National Hotel, they wouldn't have even been at the whiskey, but both of them perished. There was Wendy Leon Drew, 24, of Norman Park. She'd come to Queensland to join the police force. She was at the whiskey because the place she intended to go that night had cancelled the entertainment. Another person who probably shouldn't have been at the whiskey that night. There was Peter Marcus, or sometimes Red Marcus, 23, of Petri Terrace. He'd been working at the whiskey for the last month. He was intending to save up a bit of money, leave and open his own restaurant. There was Faye Ellen Will, 19, of Nundar. She worked at the Queensland Railways Refreshment Rooms, and that was down in Roma Street. She was there on her usual night, uh, Wednesday night drinks with her friends. There was Jennifer Denise Davy, 17, of New Farm. She waitressed at the whiskey and had come to Brisbane from Melbourne to start a new life. There was Desme Selma Carroll, 29, of New Farm. She'd started working at the Whiskey to bring in a little extra money to fund a holiday for her husband and three kids. There was David John Westron, 19, of Norman Park. Look, sorry, I couldn't find anything on David. And there was Paul Zoller, kitchen hand of the National Hotel Queen Street, where he'd actually booked his passage back to Canada. I do apologise for not having a lot of information on each of the victims. So there we are. When you look into this case, you end up following so many leads, which end up spreading out to so many other leads, just like some sort of spider web of crime and corruption. As I said before, an inquest has been announced. But that was a couple of years ago, and it seems to have stalled. Maybe if it ever does get underway, we might get some real answers on what happened at the Whiskey A Go-Go. At first, I thought Stuart and Finch were 100% guilty. But now I must say, I am on the fence. They weren't the most upstanding members of the community. 
But if they didn't do it, then someone else did. I think the family and friends of those 15 victims deserve proper justice, not just sticking anyone away for the crime. I think, though, that over after 40 years after this horrific crime, there are still some who don't want the real story to come out. What do you think, Islanders? Now, John Stewart died at Boggo Road Jail on the 2nd of January 1979, apparently after a six-day hunger strike. However, he was in poor health at that stage. He had undergone so many protests of his innocence. It was just the only thing he lived for. And Stuart Finch, apparently he still lives in England. So Islanders, that's it until next week. But before we go, there's the usual end of show stuff to get through. First thing, don't forget YouTube channel is almost ready to roll. I may have the intro up this weekend, hopefully. But if you, if you find it there, don't forget to subscribe. I've been doing the final testing this week. Now everything's here and I did do a little bit of a demo last night. So uh, I sent that out to a couple of people to see what they thought. Anyway, to Patreon, hi to Cat, boom, buckalunga, and thank you to all my past, present, and new Patreons. As you know, True Crime Island is totally listener-supported, so you won't hear ads, just promos for other podcasts I think you should check out. To become a patron, go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. For as little as a dollar a month, that's a US dollar, you can too help the uh, support the island. Uh, if you'd like to buy me a beer via PayPal, you can do that as well. PayPal.me forward slash truecrimeisland and cheers. I have merch at truecrimeisland.threadless.com. I will be changing up the shop very, very soon. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing, also by sharing with your friends and family. Please use the hashtag BoomFunalunga. Let's get it out there. I do have a promo at the end of the show from one of our Islanders, Chantel, called Lady Justice. So have a listen and you can find her podcast in all the usual places. All the links for everything to get a hold of me or Facebook or whatever, it's all on my website, truecrimeisland.com. So that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't. Forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, bagalanga. lovelies my name is Chantelle and I'm the host over at Lady Justice True Crime. Lady Justice is a weekly podcast that covers fascinating cases both past and present from around the UK and Ireland. Some of them are strange, many are unbelievable, all of them are completely unique and are someone's story. So please come join me on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.